Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Was this guy kind of untouchable or had he yeah. done time? Okay. Every detective for the state police that ever passed through sitting that desk that I was now sitting had tried to put this guy away and nobody could ever do it. And I'm like, here we go. You know, I'm going to make a name for myself and no credit to the auto theft guys. They were doing most of the work, right? They had adopted the case, but I'm a part of it. And uh, we take this guy down and I forget, like we had all these storage units and they were just knee high piled with motherboard computers from cars. We'd have the National Insurance Crime Bureau guy run it, and it'd be every one of them stolen. We just found all kinds of stolen shit. So finally, we get this guy jammed up, and come to find out, our informant had uh, fibbed about a couple things that were used in the affidavit for the very first search warrant. No, an informant lied. Oh, right. Imagine that. I am shocked. Could have knocked me over (laughs) with a feather. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Hola, 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 amigos, amigas, players, playwrights, dude, dudettes, all people. We welcome you back to another scintillating, titillating, and, uh, you know, vacillating episode of Game of Crimes. Right, Murph? That sounded kind of nasty. Just got to learn the English language, bro. We welcome dogs, cats, not snakes. Uh, now, what we do, if they're friendly snakes, uh, no. we may have a story about a snake. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Uh, before we get into the other stuff, I just read this online. One of the weird things the TSA people found at the airport was a lady was coming on with her emotional support snake. Oh, give me a... Anyway, hey guys, welcome back. Morgan right here, literally with my partner in crime, Steve Murphy. Hi, everybody. Again, for another exciting episode. Hey, before we get started, though, just some quick housekeeping. Remember, hit those Apple, Spotify reviews. Five stars really helps us out. We really appreciate it, and we're going to do everything we can to earn those stars. So head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars, and the next thing you know, we'll all be stars. Everybody, you get a star, and you get a star, everybody gets stars. <laughs> we'll all be stars. We'll all be stars. All right. Except for the except for the jackass who just posted on Chartable. He gave us one star. He says— uh, He didn't all, like cops. Yeah, yeah all, all cops law enforcement lies. lies. <laughs> what a moron. Dude, please, don't save your star for something. You know, I, and I guarantee you, dude never listened to a single episode. But right. you know what? Got to take the good with the bad. Yeah, we'd protect his ass, too. Oh, that's I gotta, right. I got to clean up my language. I'm sorry. Ah, that's all right. Okay, guys, also head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got good stuff up there, the book from our last episode. Uh, and we've got some other books coming up, too. So we've got a uh, British officer, a detective sergeant who worked a very long, complex cold case. She's going to be coming up in a couple of weeks, so we're excited for that. She's got a book out as well. Um, also, follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram 
But this year, Murph, this is the year of Patreon. That's where you have to be. Patreon.com slash Gamercrimes. Because after we get through, done doing this, we're recording one of our favorite segments, which is the Q&A. Yeah. We, have, we take all questions. We answer all sorts of stuff. We've got 911, what's your emergency? You can't make this shit up. We are just coming out now with episode uh, 14 of the Real DA Narcos on the Real DA Narcos Cali edition. So we're getting ready to wrap that up. There's only two episodes left. Would you call this one. the climax? No. Um <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know where you're going. Yeah. I'm not going Episode anywhere. 15 would be the I thought I thought the end of episode 12 might have been the climax, but Chris didn't <laughs> fully take one for the team. And if you want to know what that means, head on over patreon.com slash game of crimes. Folks, we really do. We put a lot of work into that. And um, we've got some neat stuff coming up to our um, monthly um, narcometer review. We just did Lethal Weapon, which technically was made around Christmas. It is not a Christmas movie like the greatest Christmas movie ever made, which was Die Hard. But we still reviewed it. Um, had a lot of good. Had a lot of good stuff in that one. Yeah, it was the best. I could, it was the closest thing I could find to a Christmas movie <laughs> and cops. Yeah, so head on over there, Patreon.com/slash Game of Crimes. Hey, now this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but but you already know we never take ourselves serious. And I will try and clean up my language here. So, but Ready? I am going to take ourselves serious on one thing. We did get a we did get a comment. And I want to read this. This is about our episode with Natasha Herzig, episode 60. Yeah. And I'm not going to use her name, but let let me just, let me tell you, this is what we live for. Because we we put this episode out. It was about human trafficking, about how she was kidnapped, kidnapped off the streets, coming out of a restaurant and trafficked for a year and a half and the damage it did to her and what she did to recover from it. So let me just read you this real quickly. It says, good afternoon, gentlemen. I hope this email finds you well and hope you and family had a wonderful holiday season. We did. Thank you very much. I'm hoping my email doesn't go too long. Doesn't matter. It's a great email. And I just Mm -hmm. wanted to sincerely thank you. Brief explanation. I'm an avid listener to your podcast. Yay. I had listened to the episode with Natasha. And as soon as I finished it, had my daughter listen to it right on. Fast forward a few months. My daughter and her friends went to a popular theme park in town during their Christmas break. After a few hours of walking around and enjoying some time together, they decided to stop in an eatery to get some lunch. As they were enjoying their lunch, a young girl looking about their age comes up to them and starts a conversation. She begins by saying that she thinks they're very pretty, tells them she's only 14 years old and asked out if she could hang out or asked if she could hang out with them that day. As the as the conversation continues, uh, she tells him she's actually 15, no, 16, but almost 17 years old. Hmm. Yeah, a couple question marks there. She also, out of the blue, says her mom actually works there at the theme park, and that's why she's there. She proceeds to ask them if they want to go to the front of the line to the theme park where she can get them a fast pass from her mom that works there. She tells my daughter and her friends they all they have to do is go to the building behind the bathrooms, and they can each get a pass. I mean, already, Murph, I'm seeing... yeah. Red signals. We got to go to what building behind where? Mm-hmm. That's the other thing they try to do is they try to isolate you. With all this being said, I'm happy to say that my daughter's radar immediately went up and she actually told me, Mom, the first thing I thought of was Natasha's story. My daughter did notice one of her friends feel very uneasy about the whole situation, but their other friend was just thinking this stranger was being nice. Could that have been the case? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, my daughter's friends asked if she wanted to go with them to get a pass, to which she replied, no, I won't be going. Eventually, my daughter and her friends were staying inside the eating establishment without rushing to go anywhere, and the individual ended up leaving. My daughter has always been very standoffish, doesn't trust people, maybe to a fault. I'm so glad to know that at least I know she was listening and paying attention to Natasha's story. I could not thank you enough for bringing the story to us, and thank you, Natasha. Take care, gentlemen, and thank you again. 
I mean, sorry, kind of a long uh, intro, but it's like, wow. Yeah, and, and you know what? So our listeners, we forwarded this to Natasha just to let her know she is making a difference. And she was gracious enough to respond. She said, thanks so much for sharing with me. Sometimes I wonder if what I'm doing is making a difference because I don't always get to see how my story has helped others. But reading your email reminds me why I do what I do. It's never easy telling my story over and over again, but worth it if it saves one life. So, Natasha, in my book, you just saved maybe three lives right there, young lady. So, God bless you. Thank you for having the courage to tell your story, and please continue to do so. Absolutely. So, man, what what a great way to kick off, uh, you know, the episode. So, um, hey, the other thing we wanted to do, too, is uh, we, we're kind of putting Small Town Police Blotter on pause just for months because we're testing out stuff, stuff you guys have asked for. So on patreon.com slash Game of Crimes, we do a case of the month. We go in depth. But people said, hey, can you give us an update of what's going on? So Murph, I have an update for you what's going on. And let me tell you, this one, remember, we had Paul Crane and Abe Perez on about the capture of El Chapo, <laughs> the real story, right? Oh, yeah. I know who you're going to talk about. <clears throat> yeah, so they captured El Chapo's son, and they were going to extradite him to the United States, except guess what the cartel did, Murph? Mm -hmm. They went on a killing spree. Mm -hmm. A Mexico City federal judge halted the ext extradition. I was about to say execution. That would have been better. Mm -hmm. Halted the extradition of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman's son, alleged cartel drug dealer Ovidio Guzman, to the United States on Friday, a day after he was arrested in an intense operation in northern Mexico that led to the deaths of 29 people. And see, this is the second time he's been captured. And if you remember, the first time... You know, calls were made, and all of a sudden, all of his troops came pouring out, and they just took siege to the little town there. They take trucks and, and different vehicles, and they block all the streets. You know, you can't get in or out, and they just go in and kill everybody. It's it's amazing. And, and that first time, there was actually a truce called between the law enforcement, the, the Mexican officials, and the bad guys. You know, and the Mexican officials agree to it. And there were pictures. It's the stuff's online. You can see it for yourself. There were pictures of the bad guys shaking hands with the good guys. And it was all to get that little shitbird, you know, free. And so now, now this judge, you think he's corrupt? Well, it could be this. He's corrupt either way. But you know what? They might have his wife and his children in their hands and say, boy, you sign it. Or you won't see these people again. So this, it's merciless what goes on down there. It's just horrible. Um, you're right. Execution would have been much better. So after Guzman's arrest in Culiacan on Thursday, chaos erupted in the city. The authorities asked citizen to seek refuge due to classes, clashes. His arrest was a result of a lengthy operation which involved 200 special forces. At least 19 suspected gang members and 10 military personnel died during violent clashes in, north, in the northern Mexico state of Sinaloa. After authorities arrested Guzman along with 21 others, no civilian deaths or injuries were reported. What does this tell you? The Sinaloa cartel, I mean, it goes back to the Tom Clancy novel, the Sinaloa cartel. I mean, to me, they're a clear and present danger. You know, and as these guys move to our border, which they're doing, as they're crossing our border, which they're doing, as they're doing operations across the border, which they're doing, as they're killing American citizens, trafficking and doing stuff, you know, maybe at some point we ought to do the old Tom Clancy thing, call them a clear and present danger. And if these guys think they're tough, you know, maybe uh, we send down, um, you know, Kevin Holland. That's all we need is <laughs> Kevin Holland. I'll tell you what, man, <laughs> I back him up 110%. I trust him. It's, you know, I, t I was getting ready to say, I know two groups that could do it. And he was a member of both of them. <laughs> yes, he was. But I think we just send Kevin say, all right, guys, we're, you know, oh my God, they're serious. They're sending down a seal and 
a member of Special Mission Unit Delta. He won't say he won't admit to Delta Force, just Special Mission Unit Delta. Oh, it's it's hilarious. So I wonder what uh, Mexican President Andres Lopez Obrador thinks about this. Are you going to go down and give him hugs instead of bullets? Hugs, not bullets. How yeah. are you protecting your citizens? We'll see that. All right, guys. Well, hey, we just thought that was interesting. We've got some other stories coming up, but that one was topical because, you know, we obviously had the guys on that captured him. Um, this is just something that happened recently. And look, I mean, if you don't think it's dangerous, if you don't think drugs aren't dangerous, you don't think human trafficking is not dangerous, what these guys do, um, these guys, I think at some point they're going to have to make a finding they are a clear and present danger to the safe national security of the United States. And we'll see. You know what? And just to put a little tease out there, we're working on getting uh, a guest on here who was one of the creators of the Delta Force in the Army. He was a, he was a Ranger, Green Beret, Special Forces. I'm not going to tell you his name now. He's a retired general now. Uh, we worked with him in Columbia. Well, Murph, you've just given everybody We've clues. Been friends all these called years. Google. <laughs> he is, I tell you what, man, you talk about a patriot. I, I'm just waiting to hear back from him, but uh, you guys are going. If we can get him on here, you're going to love it. You're going to love, it. and then we can ask him about this. What's we his thoughts about him. going to Mexico? All right. Well, hey, let's get this thing going. Um, before we do that, though, just one more quick thing. Um, Got to make sure you've gone over to Game of Crimes fans. Head on over to that group, Game of Crimes fans. Our favorite uh, mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, will grant entry if you're worthy. If you just answer a couple questions, get on over there, join us in the fun, and see what's going on behind the scenes, behind the behind the scenes, as we as we discuss and do fun stuff over there. So Game of Crimes fans, just look for it on Facebook, answer a couple questions. Even if you're in the ballpark, yeah, you're going to get in. Just be kind, be be cool. Um, uh, what, what, what did uh, Mattis say? Be calm, be cool, or be calm, be courteous, uh, but have a plan to kill everybody in the room. That's exactly right. And I'm, I'm just, I'm a little worried because I'm looking at our Q and A for today, and I see one from Sandy. And uh, oh no, 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 you can't get into the Q and A yet. That's Patreon. Uh, you got to be on Patreon. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What we got there. I'm looking God, at the wrong Murph. one here. <laughs> looking at the wrong one. Sorry. All right, well, let's let's close this one up too because we have got a real comedian on. You think that we're comedians? No, we brought a real comedian on, but he got his. He got his, uh, you know, his start, his honorable start in law enforcement as a state trooper, which just galls Merv to no end. How can a state trooper be this good, this funny? Uh, and he is. Well, I, most of you troopers are funny. I mean, I have to say that. But uh, and this guy, though, he was assigned to their investigative division, so he he wasn't out there changing tires and getting Long gas enough, for people. He wore the uniform, worked proudly. <laughs> Or the round. I tell you what, though, this is it's it's there are so many comedians in law enforcement, you know, and most of it is off color humor. So it's kind of uh, hard to bring those people on here. But our guest today, Todd, good Irishman, Todd McComas, uh, has made a career out of this. And the people that he hung out with, I mean, I was watching uh, Pat McAfee on TV last night before the football game. Um, I mean, just this is what a heck of a career after Talk about a crime scene. That was a crime <laughs> scene last night. <laughs> so I really think you guys are going to love this guy. And, and we'll go ahead and tell you right up front here. If you ever get a chance to see his comedic act, you definitely want to do it. He has got. In fact, we're going to talk about it because a lot of the comedy comes from real life. Mm -hmm. You know, I tell you, the fact is stranger than fiction. <laughs> So Can't make your shit up. Oh, wait a minute. That's our Patreon. Thing. That's our other one. Yeah. Don't talk about that one either, Murph. It's, you got to be on patreon.com slash game of crimes. Uh, yeah, talk about one nine nine. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk. We're going to have a special episode just for you on that. So, Hey guys, <laughs> but we can't, we can't hear from Todd unless I ask you, Murph, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all the funny one? 
Game of Crimes. Oh, yeah. Everybody, you're going to love this. So get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Let's hear from our comedian friend, Tom McComas. Oh, if this is any indication, this is going to be good because Murph's first question is, how did you qualify to carry with a taser, to carry a taser? <laughs> and you know those are always good stories. So, hey, before we get started, we're going to give a shout out to Lou Veloze, who was actually episode four, I do believe, um, on our list. Was that right, Murph? Episode four? Yeah, was he been? yeah absolutely. Yes, I didn't realize it had been that long ago. Lou was our first two-part episode. So Lou gave us the introduction into this next man who, by the way, Murph, state trooper. Oh, God. Yeah, hey, lim- Todd listeners, let me Hold tell on. our listeners right now, go and get your pillows out. We've got two troopers on here talking. <laughs> We're going to talk about changing tires and getting people gas and directions and, you know, making sure their car is all cleaned up. And, and making shiny. sure the DEA agents found their way back to the office after they left their gun in the That's restaurant. True. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. <laughs> that happened to Murph, yeah. This might be a long interview, everyone. <laughs> so, hey, welcome, Todd McComas. Woo-hoo. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. No, man, this is this is going to be good. This I love having you on here, Todd. Thank you for giving us the time today. And and uh, when our listeners find out what you're doing now, you're going to see why we're excited to have you on here today. Well, and <laughs> Todd gets props for having the most professional setup, I think, of any guest we've had on. He's got the professional mic, the Shure MV5. Uh, he's got the headset. I assume that's all going into a mixer as well. It is. It is. This what is kind my full time gig behind me. I'm a I'm a professional podcaster, if you will. Mm-hmm. So we can get into that later. But Absolutely. I got an old school mixer, the Yamaha. Just you know, nothing yep. fancy. Just good, reliable. I can probably throw it up against this wall, pick it up, plug it back in. It's going to be fine. It's like an old Colt 1911. You know. Well, the yep. question is, do you know what all those freaking buttons do? Because I've got like 87 buttons here, and I know what maybe four of them do. <laughs> I do. My son is like a whiz kid. He is a big time uh, producer for the Pat McAfee show, video audio guy. He's taught wow. me. He's taught me a lot. You know, I'm a dinosaur, so you know, I can Pat, I have a limit. Which which show does he do? Pat the McAfee? Pat McAfee show. Yeah, yeah, really? yeah. You're nice. kidding? No. Yeah. He's, he's the he runs our YouTube right? channel. The sports analyst, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, he's, you ought to see him on game day, ESPN game day. The he's dude the best is a, thing that's ever happened hoot. to game day. Oh, he's so good on there. He is so irreverent. Um, <laughs> but he's got good analysis too. But, you know, no, I'm a huge college football fan. And, he, boy, he has just so much fun uh, going on there. Wow, that's neat. Yeah. Very yeah. Cool. See, so, life, there is life after law enforcement. There is. There is. Lou Velosi, though, that you brought up, this guy – now, he kind of changed my whole network. Like, I, you know, I had my own network after 21 years in law enforcement that I had built. And then when I met Lou Velosi, he started introducing me to all oh, the coolest long-term infiltration undercover guys I had ever met. And, uh, and now you, of course, and I'm a big fan of you and what you've done. So this guy, he looks like... Probably somebody that, you know, he's he's in the wrong era because he should probably be cast in like Grease Lightning. Something, you know, <laughs> Happy Days maybe as the oh, guy no, who He needs Fonzie to be in a motorcycle up. movie, you know, an outlaw motorcycle gang movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's Guido through and through, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he you know, drips pepperoni. 
<laughs> yeah, he he uh, about a month or six weeks ago, he called and he and his wife were over in uh, Melbourne, Florida, and, and my wife and I live in, in Orlando. So we went over and had uh, brunch. You know, I didn't even know Lou would know what the word brunch meant, <laughs> you know. And uh, and so we're sitting there in the parking lot and I'm calling him like, dude, I'm here. Where are you? And he comes pulling up in his black Dodge Ram pickup truck. And I thought, and I'm sitting there in my black Ford F-150 truck. I thought, that's my brother right there pulling in the line. <laughs> <laughs> I have a Going black F-150 as well. There you go. Oh, well, I didn't get the memo. I've got a gray uh, Kia Telluride, so. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm going to tell you too, Lou, Morgan. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. There. Our, our, our listeners, don't, most of our listeners know this. We can see each other as we record this, but we only play the audio for our listeners. But I can see Morgan. You need a freaking haircut, dude. Look like crap. You're just you jealous. No, I'm, I'm letting it grow. I have never grown my hair out this long ever in my life. So it's like. I'm letting it go. I'm Morgan, you, and you were a state doctor. trooper for how long? Well, I was uh, between working the road and investigations and at a PD. It was 18 years. But, uh, yeah, you know what it's like. you got to keep your hair short, uh, especially yeah. if you're in the shirt and tie. And we didn't we didn't have policies back in the day. When I got on the state patrol, I started off on the Salina Police Department in 82. We weren't allowed to have mustaches, nor were we allowed to go to bars. Our chief of police said no. Then when I got on the state patrol, it was only halfway during our training where the colonel we got a new colonel who finally relented and said, okay, you can have a mustache, but it can only come down the corners of your mouth. And that was it. That was our, that was our, that was being progressive back in 1984. It was the same way here for our road troopers in 1990 through when I left, like you could only have any, you're like, you know, there's, there was a guy with a very short mustache. That's not very popular in history. And the, the mustache that you mm-hmm. will allow us to wear very much resembles his mustache. It's the old Marine Corps style, <laughs> yeah. you know, corner to corner, but it's very Hitlerish when it can't go yep. to, you know, past the edges of your mouth. Yeah. Hey, by the way, yeah. you must know Mel Carraway. I do. I Mel do is know. a very good friend of mine. When I was doing work at the Department of Justice, uh, Mel was the superintendent of the Indiana State Police, and he was running the National Criminal Intelligence Sharing Program while I was running the Law Enforcement Information Sharing Program. So I got to know Mel before he punched out and went to TSA and started doing the government stuff. Mel Carraway, quite possibly the biggest hearted nicest superintendent the Indiana State Police ever. has ever had and like world-class opera singer. Like it was what? crazy. Really? Do you didn't know you don't know this? I didn't know that. World-class opera singer. He goes all over the world or at least he used to to sing opera. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah, yeah. He performed for a, a thing we had once and we were like, "Oh my god. Why is this guy our superintendent? He should be traveling making See more like a baritone or a tenor or what? A b- baritone. Okay. As, as I recall, but very, very good. I mean, like, I, I don't know that they're, you know, they come any better at opera than that guy. I mean, he was world-class. I, I wish I would have known that it would have made a couple of the meetings far more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about hidden talents, you know, everybody's know. got some, this guy, you're like, what? Yeah. Beautiful well, singing voice. Well, speaking of uh, hidden things, uh, before we can get into some of your d- deep, dark secrets, we got to figure out, like we always do, Cosa Nostra, a thing of ours. How did you get started in this thing? I mean, like I asked some people, were you drunk one night, got thrown in front of a barracks and, you know, raised your right hand and joined up? I mean, how did family involved? I mean, uh, got arrested as a youth, fractured a few laws. How did you get started? I definitely was not one of those uh, that can say I grew up knowing this is what I always wanted to do. Like I had no inclination whatsoever, even going like into college that this is what I wanted to do. I had no one 
in my family that had ever done it, that at least that I know of. I wanted to make funny beer commercials. Like, you know, when I was in high school in the 80s, um, the beer commercials and the Cola War commercials were like, that's an era of TV. Tastes great. Less filling. Tastes great. (laughs) Everybody was in such competition. And they did so by like who had the best commercials. And I just remember falling in love with all these great beer commercials that you'd see, you know, ultimately you waited all year to see which one was going to be on the Super Bowl. And, uh, I wanted to go into advertising. I got accepted at the University of Texas to uh, to go major in advertising. I here was my problem when I was in high school. I was uh, I don't know what kind of language used on this show. Do I need uh, to be? Dude, we are we are a uh, HR free zone. Let okay. them fly. Okay, I was <laughs> kind of a fuck off like in in high school. Right, I was a good athlete for a smaller county school and. I, I was, I guess, smart enough that I didn't really have to have to ever study to get by with like a B average. How big was your high school? Uh, I think my graduating class was 339 people. Okay. So, you know, smaller, not, not like the TV show Hoosiers or the, the movie Hoosiers small, but smaller. And I, I just never really had any discipline and I knew it. And I was, I, I was so concerned that later in life I was going to be a problem for myself, like not being able to keep a job. <laughs> and my, my dad was the pillar of the hardworking American and a great dad and the provider. Right. And I wanted to be that. So I made a conscious decision decision. I, I screwed off a, a little baseball scholarship at a small time junior college in Indiana. And uh, I, my parents had moved to Texas. So I joined them. And, uh, now, did spent, your parents move to Texas while you were in high school? Cause you were such a problem child. Well, it turned out it definitely one fed the other, or I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, but I spent my whole senior year living with two friends and no parents. Cause my dad got transferred to Texas and I talked them into letting me go to back to Indiana to finish my senior year. Cause I was going to be shortstop that year. I was, you know, they tried to move me to Matthew McConaughey's high school. <laughs> and it was a huge Texas school, you know, where, where guys go pro right after high school, you know, and I'm like, I'm not going to get a play. I spent my whole life to be, you know, this one year. And uh, so they let me go back and man, that was a mistake. I missed like 40 days of school. I was the worst, you know, I was fun. Everybody loved me. I was the class clown and, you know, and all that stuff, but I barely graduated uh, because of my attendance problem. And uh, so I, I took all this into account and I made a responsible decision for myself. I was like, hey, my dad was a, a Marine during Vietnam. Everyone in my family had served in the military. I'm going to go into the Marine Corps because if there's one thing I know from the outside looking in about the Marine Corps is you, they they give you discipline. Like you don't come out of the Marine Corps undisciplined. So I'm going to go. And I did. And that kind of changed my life because did you go to California or uh, North Carolina? Yeah, I was a Hollywood Marine. I went to San Diego oh, for boot San- camp. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, I mean, nice weather, terrible experience. <laughs> like, I would, I don't know if I'd ever do it again. It's one of those things you're proud you did it, but I'd never do it again. I mean, it, it was boot camp, it was horrible. But, uh, when you get out, you know, you're just proud Marine and, you know, and I had the discipline I was missing. I, I had work ethic now to match all the other attributes. I wasn't so much a fuck off and they made me a military policeman. 
So while I was an MP, now I went in as a reservist. I had to do a, a year active duty because of the Gulf War. Um, so I never made it to the Gulf. I actually went to Norway because that's where they like send the really, really good Marines, like as far away geographically from the actual war as possible. Yeah, I don't think that's where they send the really good Marines, but you just stick with that, pal. <laughs> that's what I told myself. Hey, we're here to protect Christmas. We're going to guard the North Pole. We're not going to let to protect Russia from invading. Yeah, that's what we're here. Yeah, well, at least, right. at least you understood the assignment, right? <laughs> right, right. So we go up there and freeze our asses off. And then I come back and I spend the rest of the time basically guarding aircraft and, and saluting blue stickers and waving in cars at a gate for a year in South Carolina. But because I was in this reserve unit based out of Dallas, Texas, because that's where my parents lived and that's where I went after high school, um, I had a bunch of regular cops, state troopers, Dallas cops, you know, other kind of law enforcement officers, all in my reserve unit. And we took over this whole base because all the active duty people were stuck in the Gulf. So I'm getting to hear these crazy stories because they're, you know, we're bored. We're just sitting out there guarding aircraft in the middle of the night, you know, by the way, not one jet got stolen during my whole tour there. Excellent. I was very good at my job. Ask Murph about his time on the railroad police. Nobody stole a train either, man. He was (laughs) good. Saved every single one of them. (laughs) Very similar assignments. I would guess. (laughs) Well, speaking of assignments, I know you said you've guarded uh, um, jets and all that good stuff. Uh, uh, Do you ever guard any gates? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Big gate. Did any gates get stolen during your time? Not a single gate. And no one ran my gate. They were very respectful of my gate when it was when it was my shift. When the, you know when they saw me there. The the do you know what the uh, Swans is? The Swan Man. Do you have that where you guys are? Uh, the, is, oh yeah, Swan. Swan. Yeah. 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 So the Swan Man. Uh, would throw me an ice cream sandwich every time he came through. I mean, he knew the deal. This is they my have gate. great little pizza. By the way, Schwann's and part of Tony's Pizza, that was right down the road from where one of their biggest facilities was in Salina, Kansas. So when I was going through the academy, we'd run up and down. We used to be in the old Minute Manor, which was the Air Force Base. There. It used to be Schilling Air Force Base. And we'd run up and down. It was called the Scanlon Run, the Scanlon Mile, which was a three-mile run. But we'd get down there, turn around, Schwann's Pizza and their big thing – big plant was right there. So we'd get those little, you know, the small pizzas and get the ice cream sandwiches. It was, oh, living large, baby. <laughs> I grew up on Schwann. My mom just, uh, our entire kitchen cabinets were just in refrigerator was full of Schwann stuff. But so I, this, I got out of the Marine Corps finally. Well, one, with, one more question about the, your time in the Marines before you move on. Did you ever guard any nukes though? Fast? I think they called it fast. Uh, it, the no fast nukes. No, no nukes. nukes. I was, I was pretty much spent all my time at Marine Corps Air Station Beaufort in Beaufort, South Carolina, which is a great location because it's kind of a low profile Marine Corps base, right? It's smaller, but yet it's got cool enough stuff. We had a beach, our own beach. We were, we were in between Myrtle Beach and Hilton Head. So on the weekends, you know, we had two, two and a half hour, any direction. There goes your discipline, right? Oh yeah. And uh, we're all my money. I mean, I was broke two days after payday every time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what which they used to call it. I don't know what they call it in the Marines and the Army. We used to call it the E3 Mafia, you know. But, uh-huh. yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd buy your first vehicle at like 22% interest, and all your, pay, all your money would go to paying for your vehicle. 
Oh yeah, and you end up, you know, the the, the pawn shops there are great because uh, all these dumb E threes, these lance corporals are running around buying shit they can't afford, and then the next month they got to take it back to the pawn shop to sell it ten percent of its original value. You know, God, those guys make a fortune. But I, when, by the time I was done with my assignment and released back to reserve status, I had to make a decision. Okay, school got interrupted there, right? What am I going to do? So I was like, oh. Let's reroute things. These stories were so stuck in my head. These cool pursuit stories and bank robbers and all this stuff that these Dallas cops were throwing around to me for a year over beers. I was like, I, I want that. I want to have those stories when I'm all done. Right. So I'm going to try to become a cop. I went to school for criminal justice and uh, I did not finish. I left my junior year over a girl, of course. And, uh, but I started applying my ass off to be a cop. And after a lot, a lot of departments turned me down, I ended up getting on the Indiana state police. So when you were in Dallas, uh, this is going to, I'm going to tie the name in, but you probably never heard of a guy named Dave Gaddis, did you? No, no. Dave was one of the guests on our show. He's one of Murph's friends, DEA, but he started off as a Dallas cop his first day on his own. When he got released from training, a naked guy high on meth climbed in through his windshield and start, window and started attacking him. That was his first <laughs> first day on the job in Dallas. That sounds Dallas, about it? right. I thought that was um, – uh, Wasn't that Dave? Uh, I thought it was Guy Hargraves. Oh, no, that's right. Guy Hargraves. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, Guy Hargraves. Guy ended up actually uh, doing polygraphs for the CIA and uh, ended up uh, doing a case out in Kansas. Uh, the largest LSD factory in the world was in a old missile silo in Wamigo, Kansas. You know, that was always one of my biggest fears was having to fight a naked guy. Because, you know, I'm just like, ah, and I was a good wrestler in school. I mean, what do you grab? That. That's I the know. question. <laughs> and that's my thing. Like, I was not, like, boxing wasn't really my thing, you know, but I was a really good wrestler. But I'm like, now you're taking my greatest tool away from me because well, I was not- a wrestler too. And that's the thing is you, you start doing like you want to do a, a leg ride or reach down and do a crotch lift. It's like, oh, yeah. God, no. Right? I mean, everything <laughs> you've been taught as a wrestler immediately puts your face where you don't want it to be. <laughs> Right. Uh, or your hand. I'm saying that there's anything wrong <laughs> with that. You know, it depends. <laughs> oh, he's sweaty there. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So why are, why are pubic hairs curly, Murph? I have no idea. Because if they were straight, they'd poke you in the eye. <laughs> That's why you don't want your face down there. Anyway, oh, I have oh, a bad joke. Yes, I, you're the comedian here. We're going to have to get to the real funny <laughs> stuff, too. So how many departments would you say you applied to before the Indiana State Police finally recognized your true value? I want to say a dozen. And, you know, I'm going to give myself a little bit of credit. Uh, not that I was a bad applicant. I don't think that was the era, man, where that was the heyday. Like there was like 2000 people applying for uh, 10 jobs. I competed against 2,700 and some applicants on the Indiana state police for 80, 85 slots for an academy class. There were 2000 in Kansas that applied for my academy class. They only hired 16 of us. Oh, wow. Yeah. And those numbers, you know, during that, those numbers have never been that high since they've just, you know, steadily declined for obvious reasons. But uh, what yeah, year was that? That was 1994. No, 95, 95. Sorry. Yeah. Our class was August of 95. And they, those numbers of, you know, that was the peak. Like, and it was everywhere, you know, 
And uh, and that was also that era where, for good reason, you know, affirmative action came in to try to correct percentages of numbers of, you know, a lot of departments, especially here in Indiana, were way upside down in their numbers. And there weren't enough people of color getting positions. So for a, just a regular white dude like me, it was it was a, it was harder to get on then than probably ever before. So it was quite, I almost gave up. Like I, I had hit the point where I'd had a job, um, you know, I'm in Indianapolis and I got a job and I, if you take you back to me wanting to go into advertising, I was kind of an art kid in school. And uh, so I'd gotten a job like at this uh, vinyl graphics place right next to the Indy 500 on gasoline alley. You know, we decaled the Indy cars and NASCAR once that uh, came here and it was a cool job and it paid well, you know, and we were, our boss was from New Zealand. We could drink beer during the day while we were working and, you know, and I'm 24, like it was great. And, uh, I, I had almost given up. I was like, you know what? Be, being a cop's just, it's too hard. I'm just going to give up. And then I saw an ad for the Indiana state police and I was like, all right, one more try. If I don't get this, I'm done forever. I'm just going to take off in this career that I'm in. And uh, I got it, you know, and it changed everything, I guess. Let's yeah. talk about your academy. Um, how long was your academy? Six months. Now, did you guys stay? Uh, was Were you required? Was that uh, you were on site Monday through Friday or did you have to stay all seven days? We were there Monday through Friday, so we would go home on the weekends. Yeah, if, kind of if we... you were, you know, some people stayed because they came from far away, you right? Know? Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I went home every weekend. You know, I at the time I was living with the girl that I dropped out of college with, who ended up being my son's mother one day. Um, we got married while I was in the academy, actually. Like early on, like a month and a half into the academy, I went home for the weekend, got married. Uh, honeymooned i think that night in little bitty brown county indiana in a little cabin um there that uh, the plumbing didn't work and then i went back you know sunday night to start sounds like stories of an week. e3 weekend back in the marines yeah it didn't bother me a bit i was fresh out of the marine corps i'm like yeah no this is the way life is supposed to be way it's supposed to be <laughs> she didn't like it much but yeah so um now the you were talking about like going through the academy and stuff how many people were in your class if you remember, I believe we started with 85. Do you remember um, how many you ended up with? We ended up with 83 graduating, but that's only because we were the first riverboat class. We had just gotten gaming approved, right? So the gaming commission, or at least these people that were paying all this money to have licenses to put riverboat casinos up, were paying a lot of money into the state then. And our, our whole class was funded from that money. So it, whenever someone didn't got booted for some reason, they had a list of alternates and brought them in. So they wanted to take complete advantage of that money and make sure, you know, typically you would not replace them, right? And if you started with 85, you might graduate 50. But every time somebody got kicked out for whatever reason, at least in that first phase, they would bring in a replacement. So wow. it was, yeah, some people just quit. Obviously they realized couple of days in now, this is not what I want to do. I'm in the wrong place. So I think we went through a dozen, maybe closer to 20 people that got oh, replaced. Wow. That and first... you replaced them with another 20. Yeah. So we graduated with 83 and we were, uh, for, to, to my knowledge, it's the biggest class we've ever graduated. And it was weird for the state police too, because my, I don't know what people know of Indiana. Indiana has Indianapolis. 
And then a couple other cities, Evansville, South Bend, Fort Wayne. Well, you know, I used to live in Mishawaka. My dad taught ROTC out at Notre Dame during the Vietnam era. So, Well, well, there you go. You know, it's like we got like a handful of mid-level cities, and then Indianapolis, our big city, and the rest of Indiana is cornfield and country. Like, so 83 new troopers get released into the world, you know, at the same time. And I know like 12 of us went to this little bitty district uh, the Versailles district, the Southeast Indiana, we call it Kentucky, Anna, cause you can't really tell, you know, where Kentucky ends and Indiana starts there. It's real, real kind of hill Jack, you know, and, uh, that we doubled the, the force there at that post. There was only, I think 14 troopers there, including, you know, command personnel. And then 18, it was 18 rookies go there. So and you know what happens out. with that? Here's the bad part. All of these people get used to a way of life to where there's just like a few troopers out. Now there's double the number of troopers. Anything that moves is subject to being stopped and sighted. <laughs> that community oh, yeah. got terrorized. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, it, it, to double that with, you know, the troopers that were there loved being there. It was kind of the retirement post, you know, not that stuff didn't happen, but you just kind of loved to be there. So they were all veterans and they were out you know, stopping cars at an alarming rate. And then you flood them with 18 rookies full of piss and vinegar. And all of a sudden the same car gets stopped three times trying to get from the (laughs) mom and pop grocery store to home for not having a light on their license plate. You know, it's just, it was terrible. And, uh, we end up, uh, our whole class goes to the, uh, riverboat. We, part of our agreement that we signed going into the Academy was that we would work at least one year on the riverboat because they didn't know how to staff them with law enforcement yet. They hadn't really fully formed the gaming enforcement arm of the gaming commission. So they have this brilliant idea. Oh, let's stick a bunch of fresh state troopers on these boats. You know, the, by the way, there was no education given. There was, we know nothing about gaming laws or how to regulate, you know, these companies to make sure they were abiding by what they were supposed to you know, regular regulation wise. And we wanted to be out arresting bad guys, right? We were fresh out of the Academy and uh, there's not a lot of action on a riverboat, you know, during the day on a Monday, you basically just sit up there and watch old people shit themselves at the slot machine, you know, and pass out like that. Every shift to one or two old ladies would pass out because they're 90 and they wouldn't eat because they're waiting. I'm not leaving this machine. I know it's going to hit and they would lose consciousness. Like that was, that was the scam. They were waiting for you young, good looking troopers to come down and do mouth to mouth on them. (laughs) Oh, Oh, Oh. it it was very uneventful and we all hated it. Um, Did you have to be in uniform for that? No, they made us go shirt and tie which first of all, this was another bad decision on their part. I thought, um, we were broke, you know, an Indiana state trooper at that time, rookie made $22,000 a year. And we had to go buy enough like suit, like coat tie suits to last us a year. Right. So you got to buy at least six, seven suits. We're all broke. A lot of us had young kids. You know, I was on government assistance to buy formula for my son. And now I got to buy this whole new wardrobe. So I'm on the gaming boat and uh, bored out of my mind. And there was finally, you know, I just waited and waited and waited and waited for just one ounce of action. I, I was 13 months on that boat. 
I had two incidents, you know, where actually I got to be a policeman for a minute. One they almost fired me for. So I'm working. I'm working. No, up no, there. you don't get to gloss past that. Let's talk about the incident you almost <laughs> okay, got fired yeah. for. So I'm I'm sitting in my office, just watching the cameras like I do, probably playing solitaire, you know, or whatever. We didn't have a lot of games on computers back then. In fact, we I think we were the first office to actually get a computer for the United State Police, if I remember right, because we had gaming money. So we, uh, I'm sitting there and I'm. I'm probably playing solitaire, bored out of my mind. And I remember being scared to death by this boom, 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 boom on our office door. Now the security office was directly across from our office. So I, I run over and I open the door and they're like, get down here quick. And I'm like, okay. So I'm just like, go, I'll follow you. Yell, yell what I need to be doing as we're going. Cause I thought, man, it's somebody dying. You know, this is a big deal. This guy's excited. Well, evidently a guy had just walked up to this old lady and just snatched her whole bucket of tokens in the slot area and then exited the boat. And the rule at that time in Indiana was gaming couldn't happen until the boat had left the dock and was actually cruising on the river. Now you couldn't really cruise because it's the, that stretch of the Ohio river. You can't even get the boat that size to turn around. You just have to go up and back. So you forward and reverse at this short little stretch, but that meant you were cruising. So it fit the statue. So this guy runs off with this bucket of tokens from this old lady he just mugged and goes out into the pavilion, down the ramp into the pavilion, and I chase after him, and I yell right as I'm leaving the boat to the pavilion. I'm like, have them hold this boat. I was the only gaming agent on on the boat, so it's not allowed to cruise without me. So I'm like, tell the captain, hold the boat till I get back. I run this guy down like a champion, by the way. I was young and I was fast. I go all the <laughs> way to this pavilion, three levels, catch the guy as he's trying to get out the door, tackle him, cuff him up, call for the Lawrenceburg Police Department to come get him. So I'm sitting on this guy for like 20, 25 minutes till this is all done. And then I walk up all proud. You know, I'm a young state trooper. I finally got to be a cop for a minute. And I get on the boat and I'm like, all right, Captain. You can, you can cruise now. So they closed the doors and went about their business. The next day, I am awoke from a dead sleep because that was a night shift. And uh, I have to report to their main office down there off the pavilion. So I go down there and I'm informed that I quite possibly am about to lose my job because I delayed a cruise on this gambling boat that I have no authority to do. And I'm like, what in the hell are you talking about? There was a crime. This guy pushed this old lady down, took her money and ran off. And you're telling me that I'm in trouble because I chased him down and provided her justice and got her money back and put him in jail like where he should be because I delayed that boat 20 minutes from cruising. He said, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And I'm like, this is the craziest shit I've ever heard. So and they were who's dead serious. Tell, who's this guy telling you this shit? Well, it's coming from the top. I won't say, you know, who the ultimate bosses were at that point, but this is coming from the top. My boss, just the middleman, right? And he's telling me, I agree. This is crazy, but I ain't going to lose my job. You only been here for like six months. You know, I don't ultimately, he's telling me, I don't give a shit. I'm not, I'm not fighting this. Right. So it's, it becomes this big deal. And, uh, I, I, the, the news steps in and then then stories start leaking 
of all this, like how how ethical and and how right is this thing that the Indiana State Police has signed up to do? And this story leaks about my thing, right? Of course, I helped leak it. So, uh, oh, true confessions on Game of Thrones. <laughs> it was me. Right. So this story leaks from an anonymous source about a, a gaming agent. Not so anonymous super, anymore. Right. <laughs> who saved this old lady and, you know, did this great thing and almost or was maybe going to get fired because it's more important that we collect state money on taxes from gambling. Right. So they, that gets fixed eventually and whatever. And it it does get better. You know, they, the life of the gambling boat is definitely something that's embraced now. Like it's a beautiful thing for people at the end of their career. It's a great place. You get paid a little more. Right. And uh, then it transitions into, Oh, when you want to retire as a state detective, you can now just become a gaming enforcement agent for the same money, keep all your retirement time and all this stuff. So it has evolved into a v- very much a good thing, but its beginnings were really, really questionable. See, and you were about to gloss over this whole story. We just don't allow that to happen. It's like, we're going, <laughs> and then blah, blah, blah. No, anytime somebody goes, blah, 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 that's where the gold is. Hey, real quick question, though. What did you, did you end up charging the guy with like aggravated robbery or, uh, I mean, do you remember what you charged him with? I believe he pled down from robbery to theft and and maybe even got, if I remember right, that was my first introduction into like fast food justice. I pled down to alternative misdemeanor sentencing, you know, as long as he didn't get arrested for a year it would bump down to a, a misdemeanor version of theft. Yeah, some bullshit. But uh, that's exactly right. You said yeah. it right. It's bullshit. But you know what can we do? We do our job. We let the courts do theirs. You know. But uh, yeah, that was it. Was it became a, a underground? It became a, a big deal. That and a couple other stories guys were involved with. But I got the hell out of there. First opportunity. And by the way, this is how I got out of there. I had only done fifteen months on the road total of my career, right? So I do six months uh, total, counting my FTO period before I go on the boat. I do 13 months on the boat. And then I'm released back to the road as a trooper finally um, for another six months. I only get six months really, six or seven months on the road when I had put in for a detective job in Indianapolis. And I only did that because older guys at the post would, you know, thump us on the head and say, Hey dummy, go take your, all the tests. You got to be, you got to practice. You're not going to get promoted for 10 years. Don't worry about that. But you need to get good at interviewing and taking the tests and qualifying for promotion and all that stuff. So I see, you know, I'm from the district, the Indianapolis district. I'm, I'm from one of the counties that's within that district. That's where I grew up. So I'm like, Oh, my wife's always wanted to go back there. I know I want to be a detective. You know, I, I did not want to stay in uniform. Well, so, did you did you come to that realization only after it was like if they if they had not started you off on the riverboat and started you right on the road, would you have had a different uh, desire to to be stay on the road for a while? You know, I did not hate the road. I did have a blast. I, we were in small town Indiana where they needed us as a state as, as state police should be used. We were there to cover the holes that local law enforcement had, yeah, right? Yeah, because a lot of them were not full service. They were Monday through Friday, 8 to 5. Oh, yeah, and a lot of our towns, like two, three cop towns, 
maybe a, a town marshal and a couple volunteer deputies. So when something big happened, they needed us. And I loved, I loved that role. So I really did have a good time, but I could remember, man, that, you know, they had a, murders and all that stuff happened in our district. And when I would see the detectives working on stuff, I was like, mm, I don't want to do what that guy's doing. That guy knows what's going on. You know, that's, that's big deal TV cop stuff. I want to be doing that. So I put in for the detective position. There was uh, a shit ton of applicants because Indianapolis was a big post and, you know, that was a popular spot. Now, did but you my, apply for the position or, or a position within a particular squad like robbery or auto theft, or did you just apply for the position? We, you, you applied for the position and the geographical assignment back then. So, um, we did have specialty investigation units, but I was also usually tied to you have to live in one of these four counties, right? So, or this part of the state and this particular assignment to be a detective at that post, you had to live in one of four counties, Marion, which is Indianapolis or the little donut counties around it. So I wanted to go back to Shelby County where I was from eventually, which is one of the donut counties. So I put in for it. Long story short, I get the job. I don't have two and a half years on. And I beat out like all these people that, you know, with 15 years on and stuff and people are pissed. They're like, what? The guys that told me to put in for it were pissed because a lot of them wanted to be detectives at one point and they haven't been able to do so yet. And they're like, what the hell, dude? And I'm like, I don't know. You told me to go take the test and put in for it. So what was your secret? I don't know. I don't know why they like me. I, in retrospect, it worked out well. I had a great career and I did well for them, but I was too young. I was 26 years old with maybe two and a half years on as a cop. Most of that, half of that was on, on river the river. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not being a cop, right? So really, we look at it, I had a year of cop experience. And now I'm thrust into our biggest assignment as a detective. Really, I mean, Indianapolis is the real deal, you know, for Indiana cop life. So I get it, and I go there, and uh, I just start to figure it out. And I, fortunately, what little cop time I had where I was broke in, because we were kind of lone rangers out there on our own, we did a lot of investigations. You know, for for road troopers, we had to work our own burglaries and stuff. So I did have. Turns out, I had more investigative experience than a lot of road troopers with 15 years on in Indianapolis because they're primarily highway patrol. Because it's flooded with police departments with plenty of resources. So they don't really need the uniform guys there. So they just stick to the interstates pretty much. So it worked out. I, you know, I, I quickly fell into it. And I, I think I was a natural. I had some good mentors. Um, what was your I, favorite cop show during that time? Mm, so that would have been... Miami Vice. 98. No, please. <laughs> I did like me some Miami Vice. There you I, go. See, <laughs> I'm trying to think of what else was on in like 97, 98, but Miami Vice had to be one of the biggest ones for sure. I remember even going back a little further. I liked uh, Hill Street Blues a lot. I was, I was oh, say, yeah. That's always that's always a standard. Yeah. Yeah, because that was kind of the first kind of Sergeant Esterhouse. Let's roll and let's be careful out there. Right, right. There. But I, I, you know. I fell quickly into some cool cases there. I remember um, I, I I learned real quickly that don't, don't shy away from any case. 
You know, like if you get you're a general crimes detective here for the Indiana State Police, you're going to work probably every statute in the book if you're there long enough. So you would get sometimes things thrown at you that you're like, I have no idea. I've never attended a class. That's or any a violation of law. Oh my right, God. I didn't right, know that. <laughs> right. Like I got thrown into this um, vehicle crimes case with all, you know, altered and cloned vans, all this sh- shit. And uh, I was like, I don't know how to do this stuff, so, but I, I'm like, I'm, I'm keeping the case. Nobody's going to take it from me. So I called the auto theft guys and I'm like, Hey, will you come down here and, teach me up a little bit. And then, uh, they came down and they saw the case I had and they were like, Hey, um, this is huge. Like, uh, this might end up being like one of the biggest cases we've ever had in the state of Indiana for this kind of stuff. And I'm like, Oh shit. Okay. So, so what was, uh, give us the real quick context. What was going on? What was the scam? What was the crime? What made it the biggest kind of case? There was this, I, when I became a detective there, this was a gift, by the way. My sergeant immediately takes me to the Shelby County Sheriff's Department, which, by the way, was five minutes from where I had moved to. And he be- introduces me to the captain, and he says, this is your desk. They had three detectives, and there were four desks. And he said, this is the state police desk. You're taking this guy's desk that just retired, and now you will work here. And this guy, my sergeant, was from Shelby County. He said, you will never take a case from the Indiana State Police. You will only take cases from that captain. You will provide him with services he can't provide himself, and you're his state police guy. And I was like, great. I never have to come to that scary-ass post. And he's like, nope, just you know, once a month to fill out your end-of-the-month paperwork. And I'm like, cool. So I'm there working Stuff that the sheriff's deputies worked, but the big stuff, right? The bigger stuff, because I can provide the state police help at that time. Now they're self-sufficient, but then they kind of needed this. So I, I fall into this case that he gives me. There was this legendary dude. Um, I probably shouldn't say his name, but first name, Randy, this guy. He, every, I can remember before being a cop, this guy's name being thrown around as this legendary old car thief. You know, he had this ring of people, stolen cars, all this shit that he was into, and he was rich and all this stuff because of it. And uh, I get a little way into that guy handed to me. So they end up making it an auto theft case and temporarily assign me to auto theft. And I'm like, this is cool because I can wear like they're undercover guys kind of. So I'm like, oh, I can wear jeans every day and a ball cap. And they're like, yeah, hang up the suits for, you know, about four or five months. You're working with us. And it was, I was doing surveillance. They were, they hadn't, we got an informant worked in with them. So he was going in and selling stolen shit. And uh, we, we, this case snowballs into this big deal. And was this Larry, was this guy kind of untouchable or had, had he yeah. done time? Okay. Every detective for the state police had ever passed through sitting that desk that I was now sitting had tried to put this guy away and nobody could ever do it. And I'm like, here we go. You know, I'm going to make a name for myself and no credit to the auto theft guys. They were doing most of the work, right? They had adopted the case, but I'm a part of it. And, uh, we take this guy down and I forget, like we had all these storage units and they were just knee high piled with motherboard computers from cars. We'd have the National Insurance Crime Bureau guy run it, and it'd be every one of them stolen. We just found all kinds of stolen shit. So finally, we get this guy jammed up, and come to find out, 
our informant had uh, fibbed about a couple things that were used in the affidavit for the very first search warrant. No, a this, an informant lied. Oh, right. Imagine what? that. I am shocked. Could have knocked me over with a feather. <laughs> right. And this guy was rich as hell. Brings in some, uh, like Matlock looking attorney from Tennessee. This guy's high price bow tie, you know, just snuck up on you like a boa constrictor with that Southern draw. Like how you doing boys. And, and then before you know it, he's got you bent over a table, you know, tied down you're like all right just let him free and that's what happened they they dropped everything the judge dropped everything because it was all fruits of the poisonous tree after that first first search warrant and uh but i'll tell you a story later that'll be important that this that one experience in, in getting a relationship with that ci changes everything for me way down the road but i i i i got to work murders there right that was the important thing like i became a detective because I wanted to work murders and we didn't have a homicide unit like big city departments have, but I would see guys catching murders and working them. And of course those usually go to the vets in that post first because they get the most experience. But uh, I got to work on a few murders. Not Did as you not the have lead. a dedicated homicide unit or did everybody just catch the cases as they came in? Yeah. Our general crimes detectives would take them and, you know, one good thing, you get well-rounded in that spot because you work everything from a check fraud to a murder and everything in between. But bad thing is we had no true experts, you know, on homicide. Like we uh, have in a big city where a guy's on his 50th homicide, he's pretty sharp to, you know, what to do. But uh, we we all ours got soft. They were great cases. This one in particular that takes me back to this informant, I was still a young detective. So, you know... I had my role as that. The older guys would clearly let me know that I was on this gravy train they didn't appreciate by getting to hang out in the county. It's this cool assignment. And I have to catch all these bullshit cases that they got to catch in Indianapolis, right? Because they're getting leftovers there. When, you, when you're assigned Marion County, you're getting cases that either happen only on state property or the Indianapolis Police Department didn't want for some reason. And I'm getting to, you know, gravy train ride and cherry pick my cases down here so i get up there we have a murder and i get called in for it. now the body was found in a rural area in a cornfield this woman the neighboring county to my county so a whole nother district than indianapolis and um we get a call that you know they were out that district's detectives were out all night in this cornfield working with well, this girl's from an area inside indianapolis and they ask us if we will go execute and serve the search warrant at her house while they're doing other stuff. So we do. And uh, we have a briefing two days later uh, with this prosecutor in this rural county. And when we show up, the detectives at this other district had not scratched one piece of paper. And we had, you know, all this evidence. We, we had our ducks in a row because uh, my boss was a legend. So we had our stuff tight. So this prosecutor is like, well, guess what? Our, I think this murder probably happened in Indianapolis, and I'd rather these guys work it. So this unit is now working the murder, even though it's in this district. So we're like, cool. That's what the state police is all about, right? We work anywhere in the state. So we get the murder, and we find out quickly that there, this woman was w living with this biker fiancé. And they had recently 
broken off this fiance relationship. So of course now we got our suspect, right? We got to find this biker dude that they just, she just broke up with. And, uh, his name wasn't Lou, was it? Lou. (laughs) (laughs) He definitely looked like somebody Lou would be hanging out with. I can tell you that. Uh, I find out, and I'm, again, I'm the young guy. So I would yell out these ideas at the table and they would just look at me and then go about their business. But I find out that in the county I'm assigned to, in this little town of Morristown, the town marshal had stopped this guy a few months earlier, and he had a handgun, no permit. He didn't arrest him, but he cited him with a summons to appear in court for the misdemeanor charge of carrying a handgun without a permit. Well, I'm also there at the table at the briefing looking at his criminal history, and he has a bank robbery conviction among other felonies. And so I'm now like, he's a felon in possession of a firearm. Yeah. So I, I, I finally... Why like, is that a novel idea to some of these guys? Right? <laughs> so, so I kind of say, hey, can everybody stop talking for a minute? I have, a, I think, a good idea. And they're like, what? And I'm like, what if, because of his criminal history, I go back to my prosecutor and I amend these charges to now a Class B felony of felon in possession of a firearm, which is not a bondable offense. And we put a warrant out for this guy for something he can't bond out for. As and you continue to make your time. case. Yeah. yeah. So it kind of glossed over it. And then it kind of becomes another guy's idea somehow. And my, my buddy, like the second youngest guy, gives me an elbow when now it becomes that guy's idea. And he, he just starts laughing. But anyway, I said, so then I'm like, all right, you're going to steal my idea. Well, how about this? Let me complete the idea for you because you didn't let me finish. I said, I have an informant. Me and Ken Houck from Auto Theft have an informant from back in the day who is currently in jail because he screwed up after he screwed up our case and he's arrested. Uh, but he is this guy's same age and also has a bank robbery conviction. And if there's one thing I know about Jr., he definitely has these problems. But if this guy gets purposely housed with him in a cell, and this guy says anything we can use to use against him in this murder, Jr. will immediately reach out to me or Ken Houck through the jailers. They'll send us a message. So they're like, all right, cool. Now, of course, legally, we could not let Jr. know. Right, because then he's acting as an agent of the police, and he's already proven that he's a liar. Right, so for entrapment purposes, only the sheriff knows. He arranges once this guy's caught on his warrant. By the way, when we caught this biker on his warrant, uh, she was sexually assaulted during the murder, so we got to do a rape kit on her, on him. And uh, so when we go to that stage where they got to pull down their pants, and you got to. Yank out Let me guess. Sh- he shaved himself, yeah. didn't he? Uh, he had not shaved himself, but this guy, very well endowed, by the way, has his 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 penis is completely one hundred percent tattooed with fish scales, which, according to him, he had done in prison. He got a prison tattoo covering one hundred percent of his hog with fish scales. Oh, and geez. I'm like. This guy definitely murdered this woman, right? Like this guy is anybody a who can do their own self tattoo of their Johnson in prison. Yes. Oh my God. It was it was 
probably it's one of the things that's burned into my memory forever from my career. I'll never unsee that giant tattooed penis <laughs> the, that the looked fish. like a the one eyed trouser trout with all the right. scales. Right. So I he gets transported to this jail and the sheriff covertly makes sure he's housed with our guy JR. Two days later, Ken Houck gets a call from the jail that says, hey, this guy says he has information for you. So Ken Houck calls me and he goes, do you know what's going on? And I go, yes, I think he's going to have information on from our murderer, their house. So I tell him the deal and he goes, oh, shit, well, let's go down there and talk to him. So we do. And even though previously we could never use this guy in court again, right, because he's perjured himself before. He has information that only the killer would know because when we they processed the body, she had these two little burn marks in the back of her neck. And that, that was your holdback information. Yeah, we can never explain, but certainly never released, right? And he said this guy tells him that he hit her with a stun gun on the back of the neck and incapacitated her and then played whatever games he played before he finally killed her. Oh, and that he had made a garrot. Uh, you know, a thing to choke a choking device out of an extension cord and two laundry sticks, like stain sticks. And that's why he killed her with, and there were ligature marks. And he said that he hid the garrote and the stun gun underneath some insulation in the attic, which meant we missed that in the search warrant. So we went back with a new search warrant, get in the attic, remove all the insulation, find the garrote, find the stun gun. And, of course, from there, it's got his DNA on both, all that stuff. And this guy ends up uh, pleading out in court, you know, halfway through. The the state went, and then when it was defense time, he interrupts his attorney, stands up, says, Your Honor, we might as well get this over with. I, I, I'm guilty. I plead guilty. This place is full of snitches. Fuck it. Take me to prison. And it was over. <laughs> well, at least he saved the taxpayers a little bit of money. Right. Yeah, it was like the coolest. That was really my first experience. Like, ah, oh, this is real. You know, like we're really affecting lives with this shit. Like, this is we're really doing important work. You yeah, know? but normally those Perry Mason moments don't happen in court. You know, it's just so for him to stand up and go, "Hey, all right, it was me. Let's cut to the chase." It's like, wow. <laughs> it was. I guess it was hilarious. I wasn't there that day in court, but uh, but you know my my counterpart was the guy had the lead on the murder and he said it was the funniest thing he'd ever seen he was just like this place is full of snitches fuck it send me to prison i'm guilty we're done and oh, wow. his attorney just threw up his hands like oh, i guess that's it your honor well once you make an admission like that in front of the judge or the jury it's hard to take it back it's like well my client didn't really mean that well that's what he said right 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 oh it was great and how many years were you on when this case happened not very I, – I was probably only a detective maybe less than two years when that happened. So I still haven't reached my five-year mark as a cop when that happened. That's why at first they weren't really paying attention to me. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I don't want to jump, afar to, jump uh, ahead too far, but when you mentioned the stun gun, it reminded me of the other story we have to ask you. So I have to ask you when did this occur, and we'll bring it in at the proper time. When did you get indoctrinated with the taser? <laughs> so one thing about the Indiana State Police is they are slow to get new equipment, right? They're, we're really behind the times. And we got all these fancy money, big money departments all around us up here. And they would always get stuff way before we did. Well, everybody had tasers except troopers. 
the troopers here didn't have tasers unless you were on a tactical team, like our SWAT guys had them, right? Well, at the end of my career, I get this cool job in the electronic surveillance unit, basically hunting down fugitives via their cell phones. And we were considered a tactical team because we would serve our own warrants. We'd kick our own doors for the most part. So because of that, our department comes out and says, you know, our boss is like, hey, you're going to have to start carrying a taser. And we were like, oh, two of our guys already had it because they had previously been SWAT. Well, I'm like, what? Oh, so what's that mean? I got to start carrying a taser. And they're like, that means you're going to have to be certified to carry that taser, which means you're going to have to be tased with that very taser. And I was like, we need to stop carrying tasers. Like, I don't want, <laughs> I don't like this idea. Like, I, I, oh, I've got to be hit by, you know, I have to have whatever I'm carrying as a, a tool to protect myself on myself. Do you shoot me with my own weapon or beat me with my own baton? No. So why do we have to do yeah, the taser? Exactly. Yeah. Like, I've had this gun since the academy, and you know, I've never had to be shot with it. Like, I can still define in court <laughs> that, yes, I realize it hurts, you know? So <laughs> I, uh, I get, I go to the the certification thing, and it, you know it's a big spectacle. Whoever's been, I don't know what it's like now, but we, you know the, this was new to us. And they make a big deal out of it. And there's probably thirty of us, you know, are there, and uh, because they just gotten a new batch, and certain people were now getting them, and uh, we sat there with like everybody that is waiting after you to be tased. And by the way, I just watched the first guy get tased. I go second. Cause I, I'm like, I'll get up there. I want to get it over with. First guy gets tased who is a rookie. And at this time I'd been on maybe, you know, 18 years and he's a, he's a fresh boot rookie. And the rookies were, that was part of their thing was they were going to start being issued them right out of the Academy at this point, slowly integrate them to the troopers. So this rookie's up there, and he is a, a nephew of one of the guys that I used to work with in the drug section. And uh, he gets up there, and they tase him. And he makes no sound. He doesn't, like, tense up. He just, like, falls like a sack of potatoes to the ground, like, loose. Like, it didn't even look natural. It looked like in a movie when you can tell they're using just a, you know, a, a doll of some sort that they throw off the cliff, you know? He just... Boom, boom, to the ground and then he starts making these weird sounds like and his eyes are doing weird stuff and then i can see the instructor that tased him start to panic a little bit like i've never seen this before now was and this like, were they doing the dry stun or did they shoot him with the darts this was yeah with the the prods and the wire you know and i can see him the like the panic over his eyes and i'm like I, I think this might have gone. I th he might be dying. Like this is a big and everybody. It was <laughs> definitely I'm quiet. Everybody's like, "Is this guy? Does he have a heart?" They say it doesn't bother your heart, but are they wrong? Like, did they just kill him? And, and then he comes to like weirdly, you know, and he's all embarrassed and he's got like slobber all over, and uh, and he's like, "I'm okay." And they're like, "Boy, we've never really seen anybody react like that." <laughs> So he's like, okay, who's next? And I'm like, I got to go next after that. <laughs> I got to go pee. I got to go, go pee I'm first. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, Jesus Christ. I had watched the videos of other people, you know? So I'm like, I, I had had a plan where I'm just going to, you know, clinch up and I'm just going to take it. Like I'm going to kind of just 
you know, my fist clenched. I'm going to get up on my toes. I'm just going to bear down and ride it out. It's only five seconds. You're going to be a right? tough guy. Yeah, I'm going to be the tough guy. Ride the, the lightning like right. they say. Yeah, ride yeah. the lightning. So I get up there. That's my plan. And they hit me, man. And that's exactly what I do. I'm just like, and I'm probably looking pretty cool, pretty tough for like 4.9 of the five seconds, right? <laughs> so for 4.9 of the five seconds, it's just, I'm just kind of taking it, you know, all clamped up. And then with 0. 0.10 seconds left, you, you can hear like <laughs> this little fart comes out. Like, and not like, you know, it wasn't like a manly fart either that I could brag about the next day at lunch with my friends. It was just this little, like it, it upended and pitched like it was asking a question. I don't like, like my ass was trying to handle the situation for me. Like, Hey, stop, you know? So yeah, that was my experience getting tased. And I'll tell you this, and th this is part of a joke. No, no, the biggest thing is, was it on video? Do we have it on video? It was definitely on video. And I have been trying to find that some bitch because, because <laughs> I wrote a, you know, a comedy bit, which really I didn't have to write. I just told what happened and it's part of my album. And I'm like, man, if I could get that video to release on like social media with that, it'd be great. But no one can find Todd it. Todd McComas rides the lightning for right. 4.9 seconds. <laughs> uh, and that's where I heard the story. I, I, and our listeners, you can Google Todd McComas, and this, yeah, <laughs> this skit I, is on there. That's where I heard it. That's how uh, I wanted to tell the story. It was great. And also in that skit, they and this is true. I mean, this real, at, at that class, at the classroom portion of it, like after you've been tased and all this stuff, they tell us the story that is meant to educate us. But, you know, I'm – I am a comedian at this point. I was a comedian during like the last seven years of being a state policeman and detective. So I, I just heard the comedy and what they were telling me. And so they tell us this story about this Amish guy in Northern Indiana. There's a lot of Amish, right? So they tell us this story about this Amish guy who had committed some high level felony and then flees from the police in this Amish buggy. So first of all, you got to picture this police chase, like this, you know, police car following this Amish buggy. And there's like nothing you can do. You know, how frustrated are you as an officer in this you pursuit? You can't really do a pit maneuver. On a <laughs> you can't do a pit maneuver. You can't throw stop six down, you know. But I or, can tase the horse. Watch yeah. me tase the horse. <laughs> so, so something happens. And eventually, I don't know if the horse just got tired, but the chase ends. And this Amish guy fights the police. And one of the, the cops had to tase the Amish guy. And what I tell people is, you know, it doesn't matter what purpose they were telling this story. All I heard when you tell me that the police had to tase this Amish guy is there's nothing that's happened in the history of our planet that's more ironic than an Amish guy being forced to comply by the use of electricity. <laughs> like, that's the greatest thing <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. Uh, but I, you know what, Todd? I listened to that skit also. <clears throat> and uh, have you come up with your invention yet for stop sticks? Oh yeah, <laughs> I was. I, no, but I will one day. I'm going to. And we're, and, but the problem is limited market. We could probably only sell this in parts of Pennsylvania, Northern Indiana. But I want to invent Amish stop sticks, and it's just a rope with a bunch of carrots tied to it. <laughs> you just throw it out in front of the horse and hope that he's hungry. You know. Well, Todd, do you know what you know what goes clippity clop bang, clippity clop bang, clippity clop bang? 
What's that? Drive-by shooting in an Amish community. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting to tell that one. <laughs> Man, finally, you get your moment. It God, fits I got perfectly. It. <laughs> that fit perfectly. Uh, and I just need to apologize to all our listeners for Morgan telling the joke there. Well, look, before I was a trooper at, we didn't have the Amish, but we had Mennonites. So, you know, uh, kind of an offshoot. Yep. So they were a little bit more modern. They would actually drive cars and stuff. But uh, being up here and close, you know, we, we've gone through some Amish communities and yeah, it's, <laughs> I like yeah. that. N- nothing, nothing more ironic than the use of electricity to stop a non-compliant <laughs> Amish right. man. Yeah. I just started laughing when they're in the middle of class. They're like, what's so funny? I'm like, is nobody else seeing Arnie here <laughs> with what he just said? <laughs> well, let's rewind a little bit. Cause I want to get into where you started discovering, uh, this funny bone of yours, but there's a couple other things we want to talk about because we weren't going to talk about like any one big case, but although there are a couple mm-hmm. other were, but you had a couple other. So give us a, a, you know, as you move up through your assignments, you were general detective. What's the next assignment you take on after being a, a, a general dick? Well, you know what was cool? What, what got me my next assignment was we worked a, an actual kidnapping ransom situation, right? And it came to us. I'm still a district detective. I'm still a district detective, but it came to us from our drug guys, our undercover guys. The lieutenant of the drug section had this friend who was very wealthy, and that friend calls him and says, "Hey, I just got a call from some guy claiming to have my daughter. He's kidnapped her, and he wants two hundred fifty thousand dollars, or he's going to kill her." And of course, when you hear that. Coupled with the fact, you know, we, we, by the time they come to us, they're like, now listen, you know, she does have a drug history, da, 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 da. So when I hear that, I'm like, okay, she's trying to get money out of her dad, you know, as part of her drug problem. But you still, you still got to work it in case you're wrong, right? So we set up, and back then, early days of tracking phones, these calls were coming in on a payphone, right? So they, we, the, one of the uh, tech guys with the drug unit, he was set up with the phone company and he was actually at the dad's house with something set up on the line so that they could identify where these, the locations where these pay phone calls were coming from. So we were all set out. District detectives were set out in the cars, like just kind of like just in case undercover guys are, are out everywhere. And the plan is the next ransom call will call out the location. If you're close, run to it, right? So we had that whole part of town kind of infiltrated with us and undercover guys. So a couple calls go, we keep, we get there late. Obviously guys, we get there late. There's nobody there on like the third call, which the guy says was his final call. Um, me and an, another guy are on our way to that station. I see the station. There's no car, this gas station, but uh, an Indianapolis copper who's involved calls and says, Hey, these uh, the carload of these dudes just passed me might give them a look. So I run and catch up to the car. I got my buddy with me. We light it up, pull him over. Another detective comes us back up. And these guys, um, there's three of them, three black males. And they have in their um, pepper spray, which we knew that the dog was pepper sprayed. Uh, their stories for shit right away, right? And um, they had something else I can't remember that that kind of tied to the kidnapping, the scene. So right away, I'm like, hey, where's the girl? And they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, all right, let's toss this car. So exit circumstances, we toss the car. We find a hotel key. 
in the middle console. So I hand it to one of our drug interdiction guys in uniform, and his name is also Todd. And I said, Todd, I'm going to have to handle these guys. We're going to take them to the post. You assemble a team and go to this hotel. And it was the old school, you know, unlock the, the hotel room numbers on the key. Assemble a team. Hit this room. Fuck it. Go. So they go. And he grabs a couple SWAT guys and whatever. And they hit this hotel room. And sure enough, this girl is duct taped up in the bathroom. And there's a guy holding her at gunpoint in there. And later says, yep, I was told I was supposed to kill her if they didn't call me back by this time. And uh, so we actually like saved this girl from death in a real ransom kidnapping situation. So I, I end up, the case is mine to walk through court. I take this all the way through, all the way through. It's a pill, all that stuff. And the lieutenant at the drug section has a particular fondness for me for what, you know, I did to help them with this case. And when they get an opening at the drug enforcement section, he calls me and he says, Hey, I think you'd be good for this spot. I'm not going to tell you you're going to get it, but you're going to get it if you put in for it. And, uh, I put in for it and I got it. So I spent a bulk of my career right there, either working undercover or in the tech unit, you know, with the secret devices and car trackers and the secret squirrel stuff because yeah. you're talking about earlier i mean one of the things that's i mean it's in the news so it's not like we're giving anything away but harris harris l3s you know got the um uh you know they call them the stingrays they've got the cell site simulators that I mean there are a lot of ways to really track people and do stuff and people realize even but here's the amazing thing though todd even though people know it guess what they still do they still get on their phones and they still do this shit oh uh, we we did we got really into wiretaps right because there was a time uh, that I had had have shoulder surgery, and I was down for a good while. And they put you on light duty, what we call light duty then, and you just do administrative stuff in the office. And I was like, I hate this. I'm reading through case reports, whatever. I I go through. The, I I unlock this room I'd never been in in our office before. This this little closet thing. And I see all these computer terminals, all this cool stuff like there, and there's boxes around it. So I go to the guy that runs our tech unit, and I say, hey, uh, what's all this stuff in that room? And he goes, oh, that's our wiretap system. And I'm like, what? We have a wiretap system? And he goes, yeah, we got a, you know, we wrote a grant like a, a couple years ago, $500,000 worth of stuff. We got this, uh, you know, it was the voice box system. And uh yeah, we could do wiretaps theoretically. We know we've never put the stuff together and tried to do anything with it. And I'm like, man, I am down for a while. How about I get all this stuff out? And I go through the manuals and uh, and I, I learn how to use the equipment. And he's like, yeah, knock yourself out. We had a maintenance agreement with VoiceBox so I could call to ask any questions, whatever. Well, I learned how to use the system before I'm back to 100% and full duty status. So before you know it, we set up our first wire room in there. And we wrote our very first uh, affidavit for a mobile phone wiretap, a cellular wiretap in the state of Indiana, me and a, another group of guys on one of my buddy's cases. And we just hit the ground running from there. We ended up with two wire rooms before I left and the wiretap system get, got lumped in with the electronic surveillance unit, which is where I finished. So I, I couldn't tell you how many, every wiretap they had, I had to be part of because I was the system analyst. I knew how to do all the analytics 
So it, this right. is kind of one of the things we learned from talking to some of the other feds, especially Murph. Feds would love to have the state do the wiretap as opposed to the feds having to do it. There you go. <laughs> I did so many wiretaps for the ATF and DEA because DEA, you got to get OCDF approval, right? You got to go through all this bullshit. And here they're like, mm, we can just do it on a state level. That's fine. Oh, yeah. So especially ATF because our for some reason our district attorney's office – wouldn't put up a wiretap on any ATF cases. So they would just bring them straight to us. And they had cool cases because, you know, they're dealing with violent people. Like, you know, like they brought us this one case and uh, two guys that were big, high-level drug guys uh, were in business together. One set up the other. Like, we heard the whole thing unfold. He set up one for his little crew to go rob him. And so he shows up with all this dope, gets robbed and shot, which was not in the initial plan. He's in the hospital. We hear the whole thing, like, you know, being set up. So now, like, we got this guy set up for this shooting. Guy lives, gets out of the – they always live. Bad guys never hardly die when they shoot each other for some That's reason. Truth. Right? So he gets out of the hospital, and then uh, our other guy is kind of playing these head games with him. Like, we're going to find who did this and the whole time. Like, we know he was responsible. And we're thinking, don't fall for it. It's like a soap opera we were watching. We're like, come on. I hope this guy figures out, you know, it was him, his buddy that got him shot. Next thing you know, he's talking on the phone to one of his buddies. And he's talking shit about having got away with this. And then next thing you know, we hear, <laughs> like, the phone cuts out, like, weird sound. And he's like, I'm shot. I'm shot. They shot me. That guy had his crew come shoot the other guy like to, to, for revenge. You know, that that's what I loved about wiretaps. Like there was this whole soap opera every time caught up in your, you know, your crime, you know, who was banging, who, who, you know, was screwing over who, like all these little details. I just love. Well, and you're getting the inside information on the criminal organization, which, you know, it's like it's like opening up a special box of information that now you're, man, you're, you know, balls of wall, full speed ahead. Here we go. Right. And you know better than anybody in your time in the DEA. Like, there's no better way to understand why crime exists than getting inside the head of these high level drug dealers, because those drug organizations basically fuel, what, 90 percent of crime. You know, uh, drugs is involved in almost everything. Yeah. I mean, you take away your serial killers and your passion murders and all that stuff. You're left with crime that goes back to high-level drug trafficking. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including... Our book list, any book written by our guests, will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash game of crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash game of crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.